All right, now we're set. <laughs> last week, can you believe it? So last week of study for eight weeks, I think, till next year, <laughs> till January. Um, let's start our time with prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and we give you praise for this time that we've had together um, throughout the semester. We um, thank you for the way in which you've worked in each one of us individually according to what we've needed the most. Lord, we thank you that you are such a personal God and that you personally interact with us, growing us and changing us to be more like Jesus, which is the goal. And Lord, I just pray that you would I pray for your blessing on our time together this last day. I pray that you would continue the good work that you are doing in us through your word. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. All right, we are in the letter of Philemon. The letter to Philemon, written by Paul with his own hand, he says, while he was under house arrest in Rome. Sometime between the years 60 and 62 AD, Paul did a lot of ministry work while he was in prison. He did a lot of writing letters while he was in prison. And this one in particular is quite an interesting letter. The letters to Timothy and to Titus are also personal letters, but they deal with issues that have to do with the church, the whole church, and and, um, the ministry that Timothy and Titus have in their respective churches. But this letter to Philemon is personal in a different kind of way. It's dealing with an issue that personally has impacted Philemon. Onesimus, the subject of this letter and the one who is delivering the letter, is Philemon's runaway slave. Now, we don't know a whole lot of details about Philemon and Onesimus and the story behind the letter, but we, what we do know, we pick up from clues within the letter. So we know that Onesimus was a slave and he ran away, possibly even stealing from Philemon because Paul says in his letter, if he owes a debt to you, I will pay it myself. So there's a sense in which Onesimus, in all likelihood, had to take some money in some way to pay for his trip to Rome, um, where he landed. Um, But we don't have all the details that we would maybe like to have about it. Um, In order to understand the significance of what is happening in this letter, though, it would be helpful for us to take a step back in time and understand the context of slavery Um, in ancient Rome. So it's hard for us to do this. It's hard for us to think about slavery without thinking about our own context, American slavery in our country, where men and women and children were brutally stolen from their homes, their families shipped across seas and sold for profit. Man-stealing is evil. It is heinous, it is criminal, and according to scripture, in Deuteronomy, we saw this last year, it was worthy of death, the death penalty for man-stealing. The system of slavery during the Roman Empire was a bit different than what we know in our American history. It was pervasive, but it was not quite the same type of slavery, but yet, I have to be honest with you, I still find it 
kind of atrocious. It's still ugly. It's still slavery. It was widespread throughout the Roman Empire, and it was believed that possibly about a third of the population were slaves. More than a third, even, were slaves. It was part of the Roman infrastructure, and it had eclipsed free labor in the, country, in the, in the empire. Slaves did not just have one job. They could be doctors, they could be musicians, artists, teachers, librarians, accountants. Any job could be done by a slave. They were not legally considered persons, but they were considered tools of their masters. They could be bought, they could be sold, they could be inherited, they could be exchanged, they could be seized to pay their master's debt if their master had been in debt. So they were considered property. Um, they would have been acquired through conquest and war, but there is the truth that some people sold themselves as indentured slaves. Many free men struggled in deep poverty in that time period and often saw that life as a slave could be much more financially secure and stable, so would sometimes sell themselves in order to find that potential um, security. During the time of the New Testament, slave masters had learned that a contented slave was more productive. And so their treatment of the slaves had been more lenient. Some slaves were part of the household. They were considered part of the household. They would live in the household complex. It's just a very different from what we would envision it. And they were in a better position than the freedmen. Another issue in that context was runaway slavery was a potential problem. Um, there was this fear that there would be a gathering together of all those slaves and that they would revolt in the Roman government. So there was this fear of that. And so runaway slavery was, um, had pretty serious consequences. The very least would have been they would have been branded with a hot iron on their foreheads with an F standing for fugit fugitivus. I don't have, I'm not a Roman Latin person, so. But fugitive in the Latin form. But at the very worst, it came with it a death penalty of crucifixion. So it is in this context and this understanding that Paul is writing this letter to Philemon, and that's helpful for us to understand this truth. So Paul sends Onesimus, a runaway slave. Okay, think about what I just said. He's sending Onesimus back with a letter to his master whom he had harmed, he had stolen from, whom he had left. And this is the scene behind the letter of Philemon. He was to hand deliver this letter. And what is the purpose of the letter? Paul is acting as an advocate for Onesimus. He is advocating for mercy from Philemon. He is advocating that Philemon receive Onesimus in forgiveness and reconciliation. So the letter's theme is about forgiveness, and it's about mercy. It's about reconciliation. The text does not actually say this, 
But I don't think I'm completely wrong in imagining that this was no easy journey for Onesimus to take. The journey from Rome to Philemon's house in Colossae was a long stretch of real estate. But I bet it went pretty quick for Onesimus in the insurity and the insecurity of what he would, how he would actually be received. What was it like for him as he waited outside the door for Philemon to come to the door? Imagine how he must have felt. What transpired before, between these two men in those moments between when Philemon lays eyes on his runaway slave and he actually reads the words of the letter. There was some time there. There was some space there. What was that moment like? We don't know. But what we do know is that this was a hard mission for Onesimus to to take, to return to face the one against whom he had sinned, to face the one who had every right under the law to put him to death for his sin. So, with that in mind, let's look at the letter to Philemon. Verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have this letter written in Paul's very own hand with Timothy, reminding us again of the partnership and the fellowship that Paul and Timothy had together in ministry. And Paul identifies himself in a very unusual way in this letter. He doesn't come out, come at this letter from an apostolic position, right? Typically, in his letters, he identifies himself as Paul, an apostle, and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in this, he kind of leaves the apostle part off, and he identifies himself as a prisoner. This is the only place he does this. And I think what Paul is doing is, is he is setting aside his own status and his own position, and he's identifying himself with Onesimus himself, who's a prisoner, who is a slave. So Paul, in his letter, comes at it from the approach of not an apostle, but as someone who is in a low station in life, a prisoner. And he addresses the letter to Philemon, his beloved fellow worker. It is believed that Philemon came to faith under the ministry of Paul while he was in Ephesus. Ephesus and Colossae are are two cities that are pretty close together. So Philemon, like so many of the other people in the scriptures, is one of Paul's children in the faith. He's a beloved fellow worker. Aphia, our sister, is also addressed in this and is believed that Aphia is Philemon's wife. And Archippus, our fellow soldier, is believed to be Philemon's son. So we're looking at a, a family, a godly family. It's not just Philemon but it's the entire family that has been brought into faith and fellowship. And it's the church that meets in their house, the church at Colossae. So this is the church of the Colossian people. 
meeting in the house of Philemon. So this letter is addressed communally to individuals, Philemon and his family members, but also to the church themselves. And so I love these little glimpses that we get into these churches of the, of the New Testament. We get to begin to see the personalities of people who are within these churches. So next time you read Colossians, you can have a little picture of who is receiving the letter of Colossians. It's people like Philemon and Aphia and Archippus. It's beautiful. And then he goes on in his typical greeting, says, Grace and peace. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's typical greeting. He often uses grace and peace, but carries with it such deep significance. Because all true grace and true peace comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ alone. This is the only place grace and peace can come from. Because they are the very source of grace and the very source of true peace. And it is them, it is God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who has bestowed grace and peace on the fellow believers. So in typical Paul fashion, again, he he writes the letters that were typical for that day. He starts out his letter after the introduction. He starts out his letter with a prayer of thanksgiving. So we already know a little bit about Philemon from the intro, that he is a man who is prominent, a prominent leader in the church in Colossae. He is wealthy enough to have a large enough home to house a church. And he's wealthy enough to have at least one slave. We know that his wife and his son are also believers and active in the ministry there in that city. And we know that this family is beloved of Paul. But as Paul speaks about his prayer, about his prayers for Philemon, we learn even more about this man of God. Let's look at verse 4. Paul says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your letter, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Why? Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus for all the saints. I think this is such beautiful, beautiful words that Paul would have heard all the way across the Roman Empire this, rep- this about this man, Philemon. His reputation was one of love and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was known for his faith in Jesus. He was known for his love for Jesus and for his love for the fellow saints. This reputation preceded him. It was somehow visible. And it's interesting because Paul uses the very same words to describe the whole congregation of Colossae in his letter to the Colossians. He says this, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus 
and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So not just Philemon and his family, but the entire congregation is known for the very same thing, for their faith expressing itself in love toward the fellow believers. Paul says in Galatians that the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself, being made visible through love. You see, faith is a non-tangible entity. We cannot see it. We can't see into the heart of a person to know what faith lies there, what is in there. We don't know what's in the heart. We can't see what a person believes about God or about salvation. But what we can see is when that faith is expressed or made visible with acts of love toward the fellow believers. This is what the writer of James is talking about when he talks about faith and works. When he writes that faith without works is a dead faith. What James is saying, which is the same thing that Paul is saying, is that genuine genuine faith in Jesus will be made visible in action. It will be seen. And what does that look like? It looks like love toward God and his people. And how did Jesus say we love him? We love him by obeying his commands, by obeying his word. And this church and these people were living out their faith, expressed in love for Jesus and the saints, for the fellow believers. And that is a picture of gospel-rich community. And the text tells us this. This gospel-rich lifestyle is a source of joy. It's a source of comfort for Paul when he hears about it. He's filled with joy and he's filled with comfort. And it's a source of refreshment for people, for other believers. Have you ever thought about this? How continuing to be faithful, continuing to be obedient to the word of God, continuing to love and put your, pour yourself out in love for others can be a source of refreshment to other believers who are weary and discouraged and feeling faint-hearted. It's something that can, they can see visibly and it can encourage them and boost them in their own journey. It's a source of refreshment. So Paul continues on and he asks specifically um, a, a prayer for Philemon. Because, let's see, it's verse 6, and he says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. So this is Paul's prayer for Philemon, and he's praying for Greek words, koinonia pistios, pistios. Now, the ESV translation that I just read from is a little bit clumsy, and it's hard for us to understand what Paul is specifically asking for. But the NIV says it beautifully. He says, I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening 
your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. The word partnership is what koinonia means. It's this communion, this partnership. Paul uses it again in verse 17 when he says, so if you consider me your partner, it's koinonia. It's a word that's used throughout the New Testament to speak about the communion of the saints, the Christian fellowship that we have, the body of believers, this new oneness that we have because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, because of Jesus Christ, and we are united to Christ as each of us are united by faith in Christ Jesus. We are united to one another. And he's referring to this union that we have, and he's praying that this union that, has, that we experience through our faith in Jesus would become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that we have in Jesus Christ. So as, as Philemon continues to live with his faith expressing itself in, in love toward the fellow believers, Paul's prayer is that that would deepen his understanding of all that the riches that we have in Jesus Christ. So as he walks in obedience and as he sacrificially serves and loves, that his understanding of the riches of Jesus would become more, he would become more aware of them and, and understand them more. So it sounds to me that our understanding of Jesus, who he is and all that he has done and accomplished for us grows as we walk by faith, living sacrificially out of love for one another. If we want to know him, which is what our aim is, we're here because we want to know him, right? We study him in the word, but then we have to walk it out in faith and obedience. And that's the whole complete picture of how we grow in knowing all that Christ is and all that he has done our behalf, on our behalf. And so it's in light of this prayer and this truth that Paul writes and makes his appeal to Philemon. Let's continue on in verse 8. Paul says, accordingly, so in light of what I've just prayed, would have just taught you, would have just said about living and, and understanding and walking in koinonia, community, by faith, loving one another. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. Let me just pause there. Old is a relative term. Paul is probably not that old in years. He's less than 60. But let me th think about Paul's life and think about Paul's ministry and how difficult and how much suffering he experienced everywhere he went. Fighting the good fight of faith, Paul likely felt way older than his years. So I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, reminding him again of his own station in life right now as a prisoner, he says, I appeal to you for my child, 
Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but out of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, and how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. For love's sake, I appeal to you. I appeal. He's not making a command. He could make a command, right? He is an apostle and he has that right to make a command. I mean, we've seen him in the, in, throughout this whole semester in the letter to Timothy. He made a lot of commands. You know, he was commanding this and that and the other thing and telling Timothy to command. But here in this letter, he takes a completely different approach. He's appealing to the heart of Philemon. And I, and as I reflect on that, I think many of us actually would prefer that he had made a command in this situation. Wouldn't we? Slavery's awful. If there was ever a time for him to make a command and abolish slavery, it would have been right here, right now, right, right in this space, right? And there's part of us that's like, why didn't he? Why wouldn't he? This is a social ill. This is an evil that needs to be done away with. And there are many reasons, I'm sure, that he did not take that approach, mostly because the Holy Spirit didn't lead him to take that approach. But there's a couple things I'd like to point out. One, if he had done that, he would have been leading a revolt. A social revolution, which would have stripped the gospel of its impact and power. And I hope that we will see by the end of this time together that it's the gospel that has the power. And that's what he's doing here. He's not trying to lead a revolution that's going to revolt and turn Rome upside down, create a war. He's leading a revolution in a different way. It's a revolution of the heart. Because there's no true change that will happen in society unless people's hearts are changed. And he is appealing to the hearts of Philemon, his family, his church, and throughout the millennia to us today. He appeals. He doesn't command, but he's appealing to the heart. Now, appeal is a public urging. It kind of carries with it court type thing. So he's, he's appealing in some sense for asking for a verdict, an answer back from Philemon. It's done in a public way. He's making his appeal publicly. It's not just a private letter to Philemon alone, but his whole church is involved in this appeal. And he's appealing for him to do the right thing. There's just so much heart language in this. I mean, Paul is appealing out of his own, the love that he has in his own heart for Philemon, his love for Onesimus, his love for the people of Colossae. He's appealing for permission, not compulsion. Look at verse 14. 
He says, I preferred to do nothing without your consent. He's like, I could have kept him. I could have kept him with me where he was safe and secure. He's been serving me well. I could have kept him. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. He didn't want to rob him of the blessing of willingly giving back his servant to, to Paul. So he's not wanting to command him. He's not wanting to force him. And his appeal is being made out of love. And Paul has been already weaving love in in this letter already. He's already appealed to, to Philemon reminding him, even in his prayer, that he's known for his love. (laughs) And the Colossian church is known for their love. Paul greets Philemon as beloved. Philemon is his beloved son in the faith. So there's this mutual love that resides at the heart of koinonia, of community in Jesus Christ. The love that Paul, Philemon, and the other believers have does not originate in them, though. It does not come from them. They love because they have first been loved. 1 John 4, 9 tells us, In this, the love of God has been made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, because none of us did. We don't love him. On our own volition, we do not love him. But that he first loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the atonement for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, then we also ought to love one another. So this appeal that Paul makes is rooted in the love of God that overflows into the hearts of those who belong to him and it overflows out of our hearts into the lives of others. And it is on this basis of this love that he makes his appeal for mercy for Onesimus, who is now of this same faith. He tells Philemon Onesimus became my child while I was in prison, right? I appeal to you for my child, whose father I became in my imprisonment. So he is appealing on the basis of love, and he's appealing on the basis of their common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Rome was a very common place for a slave to run to, to seek security and to hide out amongst the masses of people. And this is the place that Onesimus lands, but I love the beauty of the sovereignty of God that we see just in this letter. God used this to bring this young man to himself. He used his own sin, his own running away, to bring him into true freedom. Even if Onesimus was a runaway slave and he was free, he wasn't truly free. He was still in bondage to sin. 
And so God used this in his life to set him truly free. And who the Son sets free is free indeed. And it's so funny to me how somehow, providentially, Paul also happens to just be in Rome at that same time. You know, he's in an under house arrest. I'm sure he wasn't thrilled that he was stuck in Rome. But he capitalized on his imprisonment. And somehow the Lord sovereignly brings this runaway slave into the proximity of Paul. And he comes to faith. He turns to Jesus. He turns to Christ for salvation. And I love how Paul just brings out God's sovereignty in the retelling of his events. In verse 15, he says, For this perhaps is why he was parted from you in the first place. It was for this reason that you might have him back forever, for all eternity, no longer as a bondservant, no longer as your slave, but now much more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Isn't it beautiful? Under Paul's ministry, both the master and the slave have been saved. Isn't that beautiful? Where else will that ever happen? Only in the gospel of Jesus Christ is that a possibility. Only in this place. Onesimus is now a true child in the faith, beloved to Paul and useful to him. He describes, Paul describes the change that has happened because of the salvation in verse 11. He says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. The name Onesimus means useful. It was a common name for slaves in that time period because of the meaning of it. But Onesimus had been useless, right? He wasn't living up to his name. He was not useful at all. He was a runaway. He didn't do the work that he was supposed to do. He was useless. But in Christ Jesus, he became useful. And look at that change. I mean, this runaway slave was now willingly, and in some ways, a slave for Paul. He willingly served Paul while he was in prison. And he served him so well that for Paul to send him back, he was sending back his own heart. He didn't want to let him go back. But he does send him back. Why? It's faith expressing itself in love. Why does Paul send him back? And in this case, the love that is being expressed is shown forth in repentance and obedience. Onesimus had wronged Philemon. He had run away. He had stolen. He had, whatever he had done, he had wronged him. And he needed to face the consequences of his sin. Repentance is a fruit of faith. And this is a moment that we are looking at as a moment of repentance. It's also obedience. The word of God would have sent him back. What does the word of God say about bondservants? Ephesians 6, 5. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Serve these human 
Masters, as you were serving Christ. Colossians 3.22, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as, service as people pleasers, but with the sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. 1 Timothy 6.1-2, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So the word of God, and I can just imagine Paul discipling Onesimus during this season when he's with him, teaching him these truths, and them together coming to the place where they are in agreement that Onesimus, if he were to be obedient, needed to go back, needed to go back and repent before Philemon because he had not obeyed the word of the Lord. So let's take a moment just to reflect on this truth, that faith and repentance is not an easy path to take. It's not easy, but it is good. Paul sending Onesimus to Philemon to face the consequences of his sinful choice was not easy for either one, Paul or Philemon. Yes, Paul is advocating for him, and clearly there's a hope in the letter of Philemon that he would respond appropriately to the appeal, but it was not a guarantee. And this would have been hard for Paul to send this young believer alone, unable to travel with him on his mission, and this would have been hard for Onesimus to go with simply a letter in hand, but they both chose to be obedient in the hard place. It's what the walk of faith is, isn't it? Being obedient in the hard. Being faithful in the hard. Trusting in the hard. Trusting that God's ways are good and that God's ways will bring life and joy and refreshment, even if it's hard. This is what the path of faith is. And we're given a beautiful picture in this of what genuine faith looks like, what genuine repentance looks like. It is one who is completely surrendered and obedient to the word of God, whatever the cost. And Onesimus standing at the door reveals that he is there in repentance. And Paul, appeal, Paul gives an appeal for reconciliation and for forgiveness. Let's look specifically at what Paul appeal is, Paul's appeal is. Verse 17 says, So if you consider me your partner, your koinonia, communion, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this letter with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of you owing me your own self. So he's like, you owe me. I'm the one that led you to Jesus. I'm the one that shared faith with you. You're my child in the faith. So you owe me a little something here. <laughs> he kind of calls on that. He says, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. So he's, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. He's seeking reconciliation between the two of them. 
This is where enemies now become friends. The relationship that had once been shattered by sin to be restored. restored. Paul is asking for more than mercy here. He's asking for more than not just punishing him for his crime. Not just branding him as a fugitive. He's asking even more than taking him back into his own home as a slave. He wants him to receive him as he would receive Paul. How would Paul have been received? If Paul was standing at the door. Yeah. I mean, Philemon would have been pretty excited. The church would have been thrilled. I mean, we, we know Paul's asking for hospitality. He's hoping for him. He hopes to go and visit, right? So he's like, prepare a room for me. They would have prepared the best room in the house for him. This is Paul, his father in the faith. Paul, the apostle. He's asking for so much more. He's asking for them to, for Philemon to receive Onesimus as his own as his own family, as a beloved brother. Because that's what he is. He is a beloved brother. He is valuable, not just because he was a slave, but because God had placed value on him, because he was a part of the family. He's his beloved brother for all eternity. And he's also asking for forgiveness. Paul appeals for reconciliation of the relationship, but also forgiveness of any debt that would have been owed to Philemon. He had sinned against him. There was a debt to be paid. And that's the thing about debt that we don't often hear about, is that it doesn't go away. For as much as our government would like to tell us that it just disappears, a debt is a debt is a debt. Somebody must absorb the debt whether it's the person who took it out or the person who gave it or somebody else on their behalf, somebody must absorb the debt. So the options in this particular story is Onesimus has to absorb it. He has to figure out a way to pay it back. Philemon has to absorb it or Paul will absorb it on behalf. But he's asking for the forgiveness of the debt. And then he continues on, verse 21, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, I am, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, one of the members of, he's one of the members of the church at Colossae, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, send greeting to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my, be- my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. He ends the letter in much the same way with greetings from fellow workers that are with him in Rome right now. Back to the church of Colossae, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. But he ends with this confidence He is confident that Philemon is going to respond in just the way that Paul had hoped and prayed he would. He's confident 
of his obedience. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us how this situation was resolved. Like, I wish there was like Philemon chapter 2 that said, and Philemon send him back, right? We don't have that. We don't have that given to us. But there's a couple clues that we, we have um, that could, could hint at the fact that Philemon did exactly and more than what Paul had asked for. We have in Colossians, the end of Colossians, chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, Paul mentions this. Now, the book of Colossians was written after Philemon. They were written in pretty the same time period, same time frame, while Paul was imprisoned in Rome, but it was written second. And Paul says this in Colossians, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus. So he's sending Onesimus back, which tells us or hints at Philemon had sent Onesimus back to serve Paul, which is really where Paul's heart was. Free and clear. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. I love that. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. I think that Philemon did all that Paul had hoped he would do. And the letter to Philemon itself, I think the fact that it's in our scripture it's preserved for us, is a testimony of what Philemon chose to do as well. And there's also another little thing that Hin said what happened. Um, church tradition, Ignatius, one of the early church fathers, writes that Onesimus went from being a slave or a bondservant to beloved brother to bishop in Ephesus, which I think is beautiful, especially in light of the fact that we had Timothy, who was a bishop in Ephesus, and potentially our little Onesimus, the slave who just became a follower of Jesus, follows Timothy in the ministry. Isn't that beautiful? This is the beauty of the gospel, ladies. This is what the gospel does. So let's wrap this up. Why is this letter in scripture? It's just a short letter. In fact, It's Paul's shortest letter that he wrote. It's a personal letter about a personal situation that happened 2,000 years ago. It has no powerful theological statements at all. It doesn't even mention the cross of Jesus at all, which is like his focus in every other letter that he's written. He's always talking about the gospel, and he's always talking about the cross. And there's always all sorts of theological truths that are just packed into these letters. But none of that, we find none of that in this letter. So why? Why could we possibly have this letter? What could it possibly mean for us today? Well, I have to say that while the words of the gospel are not in this letter, this letter is one of the most powerful proclamations of the gospel that you can find. This letter beautifully proclaims the message of the gospel. This letter of Philemon is really truly about Jesus and his advocacy on behalf 
of us who are all fugitives from God. You see, Onesimus was a slave. He had no rights. He had broken the law. He was already under the penalty of death because of his status. He needed someone to advocate for him, to appeal on the basis of love on his behalf. And this is who we are before God, all of us. When we read this letter, we are Onesimus. In Romans, Paul teaches, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, right? This is where we stand. We're standing in the shoes of Onesimus. We are fugitives, enemies of God and in desperate need of an advocate. And like Paul, Jesus is the one who advocates on our behalf. 1 John 2 verse 1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. (laughs) Many of us know this verse. We talk about it a lot. But what does that mean? That we have an advocate before the Father. What does that look like? What does that sound like? Well, it sounds probably a lot like what Paul is doing in his letter. Paul, through his letter, stood between Onesimus and Philemon. And Jesus, through his life, stands between us and God. Jesus, like Paul, identified with us in our low estate. In Philippians, he tell, we are told that he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. When he took on flesh, he entered into our low estate. He stands between us and God because he's the atonement for our sins. 1 John 2, 2 says he is the propitiation or the atonement for our sins. And not for ours only, not just for the Jews, but also without distinction for the world. For Jew and Gentile, for slave and free, for male and female. In other words, he paid our debt that we could not pay so that we could know forgiveness of our sins. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood between, against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And Jesus also reconciles us to the Father. Romans 5, 10 through 11 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we received reconciliation. And all of this comes from the love of God. It is this love that propels us to come home in repentance seeking Jesus as our advocate, as our Savior, 
Jesus' advocacy for us is the same as Paul's. He says these words over us, I've paid her debt with my body and blood on the cross. She's forgiven and free. She is now no longer a slave, but a daughter. Receive her as you would receive me. As a beloved daughter in whom you are well pleased. And the father, out of love for his son, does just that. But there's more. Repentance, forgiveness, and being reconciled to the Father through the Son isn't all that happens as a result of the gospel of Jesus. We are reconciled to one another. We are united to Christ and united to one another. That is all through this letter. This gospel of Jesus changes everything. It reconciles the unreconcilable and brings them into koinonia. Fellowship, communion in Jesus Christ. Think about Paul. He is a highly educated Jew. Think about Onesimus. He is a poor slave. Think about Philemon. He's a wealthy Gentile. All three of these men united in intimacy and in relationship. How? Not by force. Not through laws. Not through social justice activism, but because of the gospel. The gospel did this. Galatians says there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21 says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We do not regard anyone according to their social status. We do not regard anyone according to their ethnicity. We are one in Christ. We are brothers and sisters. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, gave us, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And what is that message? It's Jesus. It's the word of God. It's the gospel. In my place condemned he stood. This is the message of reconciliation that God has given to us to take to the world. The gospel is the power. There is nothing else that's going to do what the gospel will do. It's the power. Paul declares in Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. This is the power that we have been entrusted with as the church to make change in the world, because it will only be through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that lives can be reconciled. It is only in this place. And this is our purpose. This is why we've been left here 
in this age until he comes to be devoted to the word of God and to this gospel. For God himself is making his appeal to the world through us. Therefore, we are ambassadors. This is, again, continuation from 2 Corinthians 5. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So in closing, let me pray a benediction over you. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.